Well, it really is truly wonderful to see you all here. But may I speak perfectly frankly as we start? I think you are crazy. I think you are absolutely nuts. You're absolutely crazy because you've chosen to come to a conference that's going to go for five days speaking about the church. Can you think of a more boring topic than the church? Seriously, I can't believe you paid 300 bucks to come. In fact, I was so astounded, really, that we were going to do five days on the church that I went online to see what other conference I could attend (laughs) this week. And, you know, I found one. It's starting today. And, I I mean, we can organise the buses. We can... Oh, we'd have to catch a plane. But let me show you this conference. This is the... Yes, you look at it. This is the... International Data Governance and Information Quality Conference in San Diego, and it is starting today. And this is a fantastic conference. I mean, practical approaches and success stories. So you're on a winner. But look at some of the talks they're going to have. These are fantastic. (laughs) Data you love. (laughs) Building data governance and data quality at Conagra Foods, and then creating the Emerging Realised Information Age 3.0 organisation. I don't know what any of those words mean. (laughs) You could be at this conference starting today. Okay, so then you think, okay, well, suddenly the church is not looking too bad as a topic, okay, compared to the other options. But do you know where they're having their conference? Hmm. They're having their conference at the Catamaran Resort Hotel and Spa in San Diego. You can put up with all sorts of things when catamarans are involved. (laughs) But no, you have come. You have come to a conference on the church. Five days on the church? Is there really that much to say? You better believe it. You better believe it. Is it that important? You better believe it. It is that important. The church, in all its grit and its glory, stands at the very centre of God's plans for this world. If we ignore the church, if we write it off, we actually condemn ourselves to fiddling around on the periphery of God's plans. Worse, actually, if we ignore the church, we show ourselves to be completely ignorant of God's intentions for this world and for ourselves. Because the church, the community of God, joined together around Jesus Christ, it is key. That's what we're going to explore together this week, from the Christian scriptures, from the Bible. Now, I wonder what your reaction was when you first heard the EU's annual conference was going to be on the church. Maybe you were excited, or maybe you wished you could go to the data conference instead. Part of the reason, actually, for our varied reactions is because of the different ways we view church. I'm now on page nine of your booklet. So let's think about church according to us. We all have different experiences and conceptions of church. Let's have a show of hands for a moment. Who here, when you turn up to church on a Sunday, when you turn up, hand up if there are less than 100 people in the room when you go to church. 
Hand, keep your hand up if there's less than, say, 60 when you turn up to church. Keep your hand up if there's less than 30 when you turn up to church. Put your hands right up. Now, your experience of church week by week is going to be really different to your experience here at EU's annual conference, isn't it? But on the other way, um, put your hand up if you reckon there'd be between, you know, 1 to 200 when you go to church on a Sunday. Okay? Put your hand up if you think there'd be between 200 and 400 when you turn up to church on a Sunday. What about if it's between 400 and 1,000 people? Put your hand up. A few? Yeah, put your hands up. It's great. Put your hands up. What about if you go to church with more than 1,000 people when you turn up to church? Anyone? Yeah, there's a few. See, that's a massive difference. They're turning up to AU's annual conference going, oh, yeah, it's sort of a nice, intimate gathering. (laughs) Because it is. We have so many different experiences of church, don't we? And it's not just church size. There's the public face of church, which tends to be about denominations and politics and media releases and official dogma. But then there's our own personal experience of church, whether that might be amazing and wonderful or whether actually it might be astonishingly awful. And sometimes our experience of church is actually horrifying. And as a result of all these different experiences and conceptions, we're then filled with different feelings about church. You might be incredibly thankful for your church. Maybe it's where you met Jesus. Hand up if you became a Christian through church, through a church. Praise God, that's awesome, right? That's fantastic. But then maybe you're filled with anger about church because of the shameful way you've been treated. How do you feel about going to church? Are you filled with eager expectation on a Sunday? I'm so looking forward to church tonight. Or are you filled with sort of dutiful drudgery? Sometimes we're actually filled with disdain. My church sucks. And sometimes we're filled with arrogance. Your church sucks. All of these feelings, these different feelings, are then reflected in different attitudes about church. Whether you regard church as an optional extra to your Christian life, or whether at the other end of the spectrum you sort of think that you're not really saved unless you're there every week. Maybe you treat church like medicine. You take it because they tell you it's good for you. Though sometimes it's hard to see how. Or maybe you take it like a recreational drug. It's your own spiritual high. It's your weekly upper. And frankly, both attitudes can be problems. So whatever your range of experiences, your feelings and your attitudes, I suspect actually that most of us fit the description that's there on your page from Stanley Halvas and William Williamson. It's there on your page. You can see what they say. Christians have fallen into the bad habit of acting as if the church really does not matter as we go about trying to live like Christians. Is that true of you? We live like, in some ways, it doesn't really matter to our life as a Christian in the world. Well, the church, even if we love it, is, is just, frankly, that not central in our own lives often. But now let's compare that with what God says about the church, the church according to God. Here's some verses from the Scriptures. First of all, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22. God has made Christ the head over all things for the church. Jesus is Lord 
for the sake of the church. Does that make sense to you as you think about that? Do you go, oh yeah, I understand that, I know why. Because for most of us, I think we go, okay, that sentence from Paul doesn't really make much sense to me. God has made Christ the head over all things for the church. And that's because we don't really understand what the church is and who it's for and what, what God's doing in it. Or a bit later in Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10, Paul writes, Through the church, the wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. That is what he's saying is through the church's very existence, God shows the superiority of his own wisdom to the demons. God displays his great wisdom to the demonic realm through the existence of the church. Really? That sounds amazing. Not talking about my church, right? Surely. Yes, your church. Finally, listen to Jesus' words for a moment. Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Jesus is building a church that will charge down the very gates of death itself. It's a church that will outlast death, that will go on forever. In fact, the church will outlast the present universe. The church is no small sideshow, at least not according to God. And that's what we're going to explore together this week. Now, before we go on any further, we need to just get some of our terminology right. Uh, the word church in our English New Testaments, it's a translation of a Greek word, ecclesia. Ecclesia just means gathering or assembly, right? The church just means gathering together or assembly. doesn't have a particular Christian connotation, actually, or even necessarily a religious one. It's used in the New Testament, say in Acts chapter 19, it's used of secular assemblies of people coming together. But Ecclesia in the New Testament is also used of a very special assembly, the gathering of God's old covenant people, the nation of Israel. And that points us to the starting place where we need to begin if we want to understand the church of God, the Ecclesia of God. We have to start in the Old Testament and the old covenant nation of Israel. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. So, part A, God calls a people to himself. So, the context... It's uh, 13th century BC, the Israelites have been in Egypt several hundred years and the one true living God, Yahweh the Lord, has dramatically intervened and rescued the Israelites out of Egypt and he's led them under Moses to Mount Sinai. When they get to Mount Sinai, this is what happens, it's there on your page, Exodus 19 verses 3 to 6. Then Moses went up to God, the Lord called to him from the mountain saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the Israelites, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession out of all the peoples. Indeed, the whole earth is mine, but you shall be for me a priestly kingdom and a holy nation. These are the words you shall speak to the Israelites." Now, you've got a little map there. You can mark in this what's happening here. Uh, you can label Egypt there, 
which is where the Israelites were. And under Moses' leadership, the Lord brings them out of Egypt and down to Mount Sinai, which is that little black triangle there on your map. And the Lord's intention was that they would go from Mount Sinai up to the promised land of Canaan. Now, this passage we've just looked at from Exodus 19 is a really key one in the whole of the Old Testament. This is a defining moment. And I mean that literally because this moment defines the people of God, the people of the living God, the one true God, Yahweh, the Lord. And as the Lord says here, the whole earth is his, but he's, he's brought this particular group of people, the descendants of Jacob, the Israelites, out of Egypt to Mount Sinai, and he's gathered them, he's churched them, he's assembled them together to give them a special status. They are to be his treasured possession out of all the people in the earth. Now, I assume you know what it's like to have a a treasured possession. Do you have any treasured possessions? You've probably got a couple. Maybe it's a pair of shoes. I don't know why that would be, but I'm told that for many people, shoes are important. A treasured pair of shoes. Maybe for you it's a particular hat. Maybe it's a skateboard, maybe it's a, your car, it's a pen, it's a, some memento, it's a piece of jewellery that's been passed down to you. Maybe it's a genuine British duffel coat that you picked up for 20 bucks secondhand in the UK once, which you'll see me wearing all week. You've got plenty of other possessions, haven't you? You've got plenty of other stuff, but there's something special about this. You have a particular affection for this thing even if other people can't understand why. Well, this group of Israelites was to be God's treasured possession. Note there, they're looking in the passage from verse 5, this special status was conditional. The political nation of Israel would only be God's treasured possession if they obeyed his voice and kept his covenant. Now, the covenant is the formal agreement God established with them, such that they would be his people and he would be their God. If they disregard the covenant and if they don't obey God's voice, then the treasured possession status will be lost. Now, the second important thing to notice here from the passage is Israel's vocation. We've seen their special status, but now we've got their vocation as God's treasured possession. It's there in verse 6. Israel is to be for God a priestly kingdom, a holy nation. Now, the concept that unites priesthood and holiness is separateness. Being holy means being set apart for a special purpose. And that's exactly what happened to a priest in the Old Testament. They were set apart from other people for a special vocation. What was their job? Well, they were to act as a type of intermediary between God and the rest of humanity. So they lead the rest of the people in worship of God and they proclaim the truths of God to the world. And Israel was meant to be a priestly kingdom. They were to declare God's truth to the world, not just in words, but actually in the life that they led as God's people. And then they were to lead the other nations of the world in worship of the one true God. They had this priestly vocation. You can see how uh, Bill Dunbrell explains it there in the quote in the, in the book. 
Israel's role as a priestly kingdom and a holy nation means that she must serve the world by her separateness. By her difference, Israel is to lead the world. The holy nation of Israel is to exhibit the character of national purity befitting one who is Yahweh's treasured possession. The priestly kingdom of Israel is to be a worshipping community. The call of Israel in Exodus 19.5 has the world in view. Now that's a really important point if you're going to understand God's purposes in choosing a people for himself. And it's going to be really important when it comes to understanding the church. When God chooses a people for himself, like here in the old covenant people of Israel, he does it for the sake of the world. God's not saying, I choose you and forget everyone else. It's not like when you were in primary school. Like when you were in primary school and you had to choose teams, everyone played favourites, right? It's not like that. Here the Lord chooses Israel for the sake of the rest of the world, to bless the world. We're going to see more of that in a moment. Now what we're going to do now is dig a bit deeper. We've got to identify some key characteristics of this moment that will help us then when we come to the new covenant people of God, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. The reason we're doing this is because when we look back on the old covenant, from the perspective of the New Testament, we see that the, the nation of Israel forms a paradigm for understanding who the church is meant to be. So if you really want to understand the church, you've got to understand God's choosing of the old covenant nation of Israel. Because it sets up a paradigm that's going to help you understand the church. Now, a lot changes as we move from Israel, of the old covenant, through to the new covenant church. But actually, a lot of the framework for understanding who the people of God are comes from God's establishment of his old covenant people. So that framework is what we're going to try to outline now. Now, I'm on about page 10, I reckon. So the first thing we note is that when God calls Israel to himself, he was rescuing them out of slavery and idolatry. Now, I'm going to leave you to read those passages sometime, which I've got under that point, because the point's pretty straightforward. When the Israelites were there in Egypt, they were slaves, and they were worshipping the Egyptian gods. They weren't worshipping the Lord. The fact that they were worshipping Egyptian gods is mentioned explicitly by the Lord in Ezekiel 20, verses 6 and 7, which is the second passage there on your page. So when the Lord brings them to himself, he's rescuing them both out of slavery and out of idolatry to come and worship him, that that he would be their God and they would be his people. Now, the second characteristic to note is there on page 11. They're gathered by God because of love and faithfulness. And you can see there on your page, we're going to try to build up a bit of a diagram to represent this framework that we're going to develop. The key point here is that God doesn't gather this people because of who they are. He gathers them purely and solely because of who He is. Have a look at, look at Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 and 8 there on your page. For you are a people... Holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. 
it was not because you were more numerous than any other people that the Lord set his heart on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. It was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath that he swore to your ancestors, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Notice first the, the, the non-reasons that God chose the Israelites. Verse 7, he didn't choose them because they were impressive. They were an enslaved nation. They had no land of their own. They were not impressive in any way. And if you read the second passage there from Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 6, you get another non-reason. Know then that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to occupy because of your righteousness, for you are a stubborn people. He didn't choose the Israelites because they were good. He didn't choose them because they loved him. He didn't choose them because they listened to him. In fact, when he chose them, they didn't love him. They were and tragically continued to be a stubborn people, a people with stiff necks. They would not turn from their ways and follow him. Yet the Lord chooses to set his affection on this unimpressive and stubborn people. Why? Why would he do that of all the people he could choose? Why choose the fewest, least impressive and stiff-necked people? Well, the answer was there in the first passage, Deuteronomy 7 verse 8. He chose them for two reasons, because he loved them, and second, because he's faithful to the promise he made to their ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Actually, it's not really two reasons, it's more like one. He loved them, this stubborn people, because he'd made a promise to their ancestors. The promise the Lord is speaking of is Genesis 12, 1 to 3. It's there on your page. Several hundred years before the Lord had appeared to Abraham, he'd made a promise. Uh, sorry, before the Lord had appeared to Moses, he'd made a promise. It was a promise that set a trajectory for the rest of human history and which continues to shape history today. Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So God promises to make Abram into a great nation and the Israelites gathered at Mount Sinai are a fulfilling of that promise, even if it's not the full story. But critically, God's purpose in choosing Abram was ultimately to bless all the families of the earth. So we see here the same universal scope that we saw back in Exodus 19. When God called Israel to be a priestly kingdom, the whole world is on view. He wants to bless the whole world by choosing Israel. Same here, he wants to bless the whole world by choosing Abram. And that's because, as the picture tries to show you there, standing behind God's promises to Abraham and his gathering of the Israelites at Mount Sinai is the tragic predicament outlined in the opening chapters of the Bible. What's that tragic predicament that the whole 
history of humanity lives under the shadow of? Well, it's that the entire world is ruled by sin and death, as the picture tries to show you there. That's one of the critical lessons we learn from Genesis chapter 3 in the story of Adam and Eve, where they reject God's word about what not to eat, and they're ejected out of the garden. Our entire world, without God's rescuing intervention, is trapped under the destructive rule of sin and death. But through this promise to Abraham, God makes clear his intentions for his creation. God wants to bless all the families of the earth who are trapped under the rule of sin and death. And in faithfulness to that promise to Abraham, he's gathered the Israelites at Mount Sinai. Okay, so let's move on to the third characteristic of God's old covenant people. When God calls this people, he calls them for response. Back in Exodus 19 there, we saw that Israel was to be a priestly kingdom, a holy nation. They were to be holy, set apart from all the other nations. Why? Because God is holy. God is set apart from everything that he has made. So there in Leviticus 11:45, I am the Lord who brought you up from the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall be holy for I am holy. So the holiness of God's people is a reflection of and signifies God's holiness. It's a reflection of God's otherness from all else that exists, including all the false gods and the idols. And what's the main way this holiness of God is to show itself? The holiness, rather, of God's people. So I'm now on point, page 12, point B. What really distinguishes God's people from all the other people is that they worship this God and Him alone. They're characterised by singular worship. Singular worship. They worship this God and this God alone. Have a look there on your page of Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 12 to 21. As I read it, to sort of keep your mind focused, grab a pen and maybe circle or underline the different ways this response of singular worship is described. I found at least eight in this passage, right? Different ways this response of singular worship is described. So get ready, here we go. So now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? Only to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, to keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his decrees that I am commanding you today for your own well-being. Although heaven and the heaven of heavens belong to the Lord your God, the earth with all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your ancestors alone and chose you, their descendants, after them, out of all the peoples, as it is today. Circumcise then the foreskin of your heart and do not be stubborn any longer. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who is not partial and takes no bribe who executes justice for the orphan and the widow, and who loves the strangers 
providing them food and clothing. You shall also love the stranger, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord your God. Him alone shall you worship. To him you shall hold fast, and by his name you shall swear. He is your praise. He is your God, who has done for you these great and awesome things that your own eyes have seen. What a wonderful passage that is. So I've summed up the response God expected from his people as singular worship. They're to worship the Lord and him alone. And that's mentioned there in verse 20. But the same response is described, and I'll go through some of them, the ones I found, as fearing the Lord. That is to live in appropriate, reverent fear of the mighty and awesome God, who's God of God and Lord of Lords. It doesn't mean being afraid of God, as though he's unpredictable or untrustworthy, but it does mean having a fear of God, having a a healthy and right, a reverent fear of him who is God. But it's also described as loving him. And we're going to come back to that and look at that in a moment. It's described as serving him with all your heart and soul. Described as walking in his ways, keeping his commands and decrees. Verse 20, it's described as holding fast to him. What does it mean to hold fast to God? Well, it means to not pull away. It's to stick close to him, holding on to him with a sure grip. I think holding fast to the Lord actually speaks about trust. It's about faith. In whom are you choosing to hold fast? Finally, there in verse 20, it's described as, by his name you shall swear. I think that's about allegiance. Who's the ultimate authority over your life? Who's the one before whom you live your life? By his name you shall swear. So here we have at least eight different aspects of this one central response that the Lord has called them to be his people for. He's called them out of his love and his faithfulness for this singular worship of himself. But we can actually push a bit harder on this. On page 13, there's the question, what does holy worship of the Lord look like? God's people are to walk in his ways and keep his commands. We saw that, which means keeping the Torah, the law, you can find written in the first five books of the Old Testament. These laws in the first five books of the Bible gave a particular shape to what worship of the Lord was to look like. How do I go about worshipping the Lord under the Old Covenant? The Torah, the law, tells you. See, it wasn't freestyle worship back in the Old Covenant. Do whatever you want. It wasn't a choose-your-own-adventure when it came to worshipping the Lord. If the Lord was going to be your God, then following him looked like keeping these laws and these decrees. Now, just to get a feel for it, because we're not going to have time to read through the first five books of the Bible to get a picture of that, you can break the old covenant law down into two groups. The first set of laws was about loving the Lord. So, first of all, love the Lord alone. You can see there Deuteronomy 6, 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. You shall love the Lord, your God, with all your heart and all your soul and with all your might. 
Right? It's an all-encompassing and nothing left on the bench love for God. But this all-encompassing love for God was giving a particular shape through these laws, which I'm trying to represent as the feathers on the arrow. Right? The arrow pointing upwards is saying love for God, love for Him alone, and the laws are the feathers. So, for example, there were laws focusing on the temple. There's laws about all sorts of different sacrifices. There's laws about festivals. There's laws about the priesthood, all to do with the temple, right? All of those laws were focused on the relationship the Israelites were to have with their God, an expression of love for God, seen in these temple laws. But there were also other ways love for God was to be expressed. So, for example, all the laws about keeping the Sabbath. On the seventh day of every week, the Israelites were to do no work and they were to recognise their special relationship with the Lord who'd saved them. There are also laws about ritual purity. You know, various foods that were designated as unclean, that they were never to eat, had to avoid. Various illnesses that could render you unclean. Touching unclean people or objects could make you unclean. And then you'd need to go undergo sort of a process of purification, ritual purification, in order to become clean again. Right? All those laws are an expression of this love for God. Finally, there was also the law of circumcision. Every male had to be circumcised on the eighth day after the birth as a sign that they belonged to the covenant people of God. So here's this first set of laws around love for God. Okay? All right, so the second set of laws is about loving your neighbour as yourself. So you can see from Leviticus 19, verse 18, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against any of your people, but you shall love your neighbour as yourself. I am the Lord. Okay, so they've got to love their neighbour. How are they to love their neighbour? Again, the details of all the laws helps you understand how you were to love your neighbour under the old covenant. And there were all sorts of laws that outlined the scope of what it meant to love your neighbour. For example, and you might like to add these to the diagram in your book, there were laws about family, how to treat members of your family. There were laws about property. There were laws about injury, that is, what happens if someone gets hurt by you or by your ox? What do you do about that? See, the law is helping you understand what it means to love your neighbour. There were laws about sex. There were laws about the poor and about strangers, that is, people who weren't Israelites. Now, I'm going to leave it up to you to think through how each of those fits with the idea of loving your neighbour, but I don't think it's too hard to work out. It gives you, though, some sense of just the scope of what loving your neighbour was meant to look like. It affected all these sorts of areas and more, in fact. Well, so far we've seen that this old covenant people of God has been saved out of slavery and idolatry. They've been chosen by God's love and faithfulness. They've been called to be a people of response and the final aspect of God's calling of this people to himself is that they are to be blessed with his presence. I'm on page 14. See there a verse from Exodus 29, verse 46. I am the Lord, 
their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I may dwell among them. Why has he rescued this people? Why has he chosen them? That I may dwell among them. Fundamental to God's purpose in calling his people to himself was that he might take up residence among them. God himself was going to dwell amongst his, this people that he had established. What an incredible blessing that was going to be for them. You can see there my attempt at a finished diagram then for how all these things play together to understand God's old covenant people. Mind you, when the one true living God, awesome and mighty, comes to dwell among you, that's a pretty full-on experience. Have a look at what it was like there for the Israelites in Exodus 19. In fact, the whole of Exodus 19 and 20 make for a very eye-opening read. Right? When they first come to Mount Sinai and the Lord comes to meet them. Let's just look though at chapter 19 verses 16 to 19. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning, as well as a thick cloud on the mountain and a blast of a trumpet so loud that all the people who were in the camp trembled. Now I know you think you're heaps more brave than them, but why don't we just believe it? That actually if you were there and the trumpet blast and the thunder and the lightning and the crowd and you'd be changing your undies. <laughs> it's a scary moment. Full on. Fear. Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. They took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke went up like the smoke of a kiln while the whole mountain shook violently. As the blast of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses would speak and God would answer him in thunder. What a full-on sensory overload experience. Can you imagine relaying that, that event to your children in, in sort of the years to come? When the Lord came, he came in fire. When the true God drew near, he shook the earth that we were standing on. When the living God spoke, he spoke in thunder. God comes to meet his people and bless them with his awesome presence. And this wasn't to be just a momentary experience. God was coming to his people to stay with them. His was going to be a continuing presence. Exodus 25 verse 8, And have them make me a sanctuary, says the Lord, so that I may dwell among them. By sanctuary, he just means a special designated location. In this case, it was a tent that he instructed them, a tabernacle built according to his own specifications. This really is the climax of God's dealings with his people at Mount Sinai that he takes up a continuing presence with them, 
that the great high point isn't Mount Sinai. The great high point in the book of Exodus is the building of the tabernacle so that God can move with them. So look at the final words there from the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 40, verses 34 to 38. It's there in your book. Then the cloud, that's the cloud of his presence, right? Covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled upon it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Whenever the cloud was taken up from the tabernacle, the Israelites would set out on each stage of their journey But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out until the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in the cloud by night, before the eyes of all the house of Israel at each stage of their journey. He's chosen them out of love and faithfulness, rescued them out of slavery and idolatry, to be a people of response and to be blessed with his presence. Now, if you're sort of thinking about that, sort of thinking, wow, God was there amongst them in the cloud, it does sort of raise a bit of a question for you at the top of page 15. Hang on, where exactly is God? According to this report. How can God, the one true God who's made everything, how can he be somehow in this cloud that's there at Mount Sinai and which stayed above the tabernacle and later filled the temple? Isn't God everywhere? What we need to do here is recognise that within the Christian scriptures, there is a recognition of both God's ambient presence, that is, he, he really, truly is present everywhere, But also sometimes God has a localised, intensified presence, such as here in the cloud of his glory. And we see both of these in the scriptures. So in Jeremiah 23, verse 24, we read, Do I not fill heaven and earth, says the Lord? And the answer is, of course, yes, yes, you sure do. I don't mean that, that God is literally filling the universe like water fills a jug. It's not like got a bit of him. Right, he's not a substance, is he? God made all the substances. He's not made of stuff like you and me. He, fill here, the language of filling is a metaphor. And the engineers can ask the art students later what that means. (laughs) But if, if God has made space and time... He's no, in no way restricted to the boundaries of our space-time universe. So I take it that what the Lord is saying here is when he says he fills heaven and earth, is that he superabounds, superabounds over every part of his creation and, in, and, and yet is everywhere present to us. He's not distant from us. He's not watching in on us from a distant part of the universe He's always present with us, and that's true wherever you are in his creation. He fills heaven and earth. And yet, in Numbers chapter 5, verse 3, we read, You shall put both male and female, oh, sorry, you shall put both male and female, putting them outside the camp. They must not defile their camp where I dwell among them. So even though God fills heaven and earth, which means 
He's outside the camp and inside the camp. God has chosen to particularly make himself present in the camp of the Israelites so he can say those who are unclean need to be put outside the camp because I'm inside the camp. You see how he has an intensified localised presence which in no way denies his ambient presence. I take it that God's intensified localised presence is not an act, it's not pretend. God really is particularly present when he chooses to be so, like at Mount Sinai or in the tabernacle. But we can dig a little bit deeper on the nature of God's intensified presence among the Israelites. So digging deeper, the Lord's presence by his word and spirit. See, when we read out that recount before from Exodus, the cloud and the smoke and the fire, that's what grabs our attention, right? But that's actually not the heart of it. What seems to me to be the key even of that story is that Moses spoke and God answered. Key, it seems to me, to God's presence among the Israelites is that his presence is about his word and his spirit. So the first thing to note is God's word. When God comes to dwell among them, he speaks. We've already read how God spoke to them in thunder. And the point of God taking up residence among them in the cloud at the tabernacle was so that he could continue to speak to them. You can see on your page there from Leviticus 1, 1 and 2, the Lord summoned Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them. That that was the practice that the Lord established. Build this tent for me, I will dwell there in the cloud and I will speak to you Moses and you will speak to them. It was, his word was key to the whole experience. Now, this is a remarkable thing, to have the one true living God speak to you. Imagine being an Israelite. You're there, you've got your tent because they're wandering around the wilderness for 40, you've got your tent, and there's the tent of meeting, there's a great cloud over it, there's Moses speaking with the Lord, and then he comes out and tells you what they've said. Amazing. If only, I mean, it would be awesome to have that experience, hey? It would be awesome to have something like that, some way of hearing God speak so directly to us, you know, just... Okay? You know what this is? God's Word to you, to us. In fact, the New Testament says, we have it better because we have more of God's Word than they did. So one of the great privileges we have this week is to dig deep into this God's Word to us and be shaped by it. But anyway, I'm not meant to be talking about that. This is a remarkable thing, though, to have God speak to His people. When God comes among them, He comes with His life-giving, authoritative Word. But there's also a suggestion here in the Old Testament itself that God's presence amongst His people was the presence of his spirit. Have a look there at Isaiah 63. Maybe it's not a passage with which you're terribly familiar, but notice this. Isaiah 63, verses 11 to 14. Then his people recalled the days of old, the days of Moses and his people. Where is he who brought them through the sea with the shepherd of his flock? Where is he who set his Holy Spirit among them, 
who sent his glorious arm of power to be at Moses' right hand, who divided the waters before them to gain for himself everlasting renown, who led them through the depths. Like a horse in open country, they did not stumble. Like cattle that go down to the plain, they were given rest by the Spirit of the Lord. This is how you guided your people to make for yourself a glorious name. What Isaiah is saying is that the cloud of God's presence that guided the Israelites out of Egypt and through the Red Sea, I think he's saying it was some manifestation of God's Holy Spirit. God's presence among his people was through his word and spirit. So that's the picture we have from Mount Sinai. The Lord rescues a people for himself out of slavery and idolatry because of his own love and faithfulness, calling to be a people of response and blessing them with his mighty presence among them. Now, tragically... The story from there through the rest of the Old Testament is not a happy one. So you can see a bit of a map of the rest of the Old Testament on page 16. The grit and the glory of God's old covenant people. So you see there a little bit of a map that I made and it was only after I'd finished this outline that I realised this looks, this map looks a little bit like the three sisters. (laughs) See, watch. Genuinely, it was only after all the outlines we finished, I thought, wow, that's like the three sisters. So we'll call this the three sisters map of the Old Testament and that will confuse everybody who ever hears about it. Now, I'm going to leave you to look at this uh, map yourselves. You might like to ask questions about it in your review group if you're not familiar with the story, the tragic story of God's old covenant people, the nation of Israel. But the thing to note there just from the map is that whilst there are high points notably under the leadership of Joshua in the conquest of the land of Canaan and also with King Solomon. The story of the Old Covenant people of God really is one of constant and gradual decline. They never really seem to again reach the height of Mount Sinai. And eventually the nation itself is split in two. Israel in the north and Judah in the south And both of those end up being wiped out as well. Well, almost. The northern kingdom of Israel is wiped out by the Assyrians. And with terrible, tragic irony, all that's left of the Israelites, the southern kingdom of Judah, ends up in exile. And think about that for a moment. Where did they start? In Egypt, in servitude, slaves. Where do they end up? In exile, oppressed, in Babylon. They started in slavery and pretty much they end up there as well. The question to ask then is why? Why with such a great start at Mount Sinai where everything is going for them, why is it followed by such a series of disasters? Eventually ending up as, almost as bad as it started. Well, the answer is as simple as it is tragic. They didn't keep the covenant God established with them. They didn't soften their hearts to obey God's word. They refused to worship him alone. They didn't want to be a holy nation or a priestly kingdom or be different to the other nations. They wanted to be exactly like every other nation. They rejected God's purposes for them. They spurned his love for them. 
and they ended up wiped out or in exile. Now, if we know anything about the one true God from what we've seen this morning, what we know is that he is steadfast in love and faithfulness. And we know that his plans are big. They reach out to the entirety of his creation, which he wants to bless. So, he, so the Lord makes a promise, and you can read part of it there on your sheet from Ezekiel 37. Basically, the Lord promises to bring his people back from exile, to reunite the kingdoms of his people, to put a new king over them, and he promises that they will be careful to follow his commands. Now, that's a big promise he makes, considering that the reason for the slide into exile was their stubborn hearts. He says, you will come back, I will bring you back, and you will choose to obey me. Really? This people? These people of stubborn hearts and stiff necks, they will... But by the time you get to the end of the Old Testament period, we've even started to see this promise fulfilled. But only just, and very partially. God's people have made it back from exile in Babylon, but it's not even as good as it used to be, let alone attaining the grand heights of God's promises. So it remains then to be seen what God has in store for his troubled people. And that's where we're going to pick it up tonight, with Jesus of Nazareth. So let me lead us in prayer. Great God in heaven, you are the one true living God the Lord, Yahweh, who has created and filled the heavens and the earth. We praise you for your steadfast love and faithfulness, for your grand plans, for the entirety of your creatures. We thank you that you, in your grace and your mercy, chose the old covenant nation of Israel to be your people, to be your treasure possession to be blessed by your presence and to be a people called to be a holy nation, a people of response. We thank you, Father, for what we learn of you in these things, your great love, your great plans and your great faithfulness. We pray that these truths might be written deep into our hearts and our minds as the people formed around the Lord Jesus, your Son. And we pray it for his sake and to your glory. Amen.